Well, amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. It's exciting to be here. I hope you're excited to be here. Uh, for me, we've been uh, kind of in and out over the past uh, four or five weeks. Been doing a little traveling, uh, you know, uh, got the opportunity to go off to Turkey uh, with a team of people and really visit one of our missionaries there and, and be a part of, of seeing a lot of sites. Uh, actually, all the churches we're preaching about in Revelation uh, where it was able to go there and kind of get to see those. And so, uh, incredible opportunity. Uh, we'll be going there, uh, you know, every year as a church. And so, definitely jump on board with that uh, if you can. We also had the opportunity to go with some of our missionaries to uh, a training down in Sarasota, uh, which was uh, Florida, has been absolutely uh, just awesome to hear about how they plan to uh, help our missionaries go and plant a church. Uh, was was awesome. Got to go on vacation with my family and and uh, celebrate my 34th birthday. Uh, so it's always awesome to be reminded that you're getting old. And uh, yeah, was able to go around and visit some of the campuses and uh, preached in Statesboro last week. And so, but I am happy to be home. Happy to be here. Uh, excited to be back. Kind of in a normal routine of things. And and really just proud that. Uh, of our team. I mean, I'm very thankful that we have a team that I can be gone for four or five weeks and come back and, man, they're preaching God's Word and they're incredible and I'm just thankful our church is not built on a personality. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And thankful that our church is built on the Word of God and it doesn't matter uh, who's up here. Obviously, we, we want qualified men up here preaching, but, man, they did an incredible job and I was encouraged just listening to all them uh, so I'm, I'm kind of nervous about following them up today. So uh, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 3 is where we'll be. Uh, many of you guys have been here for a while, so you know this year we've kind of had a theme that we've been walking through. That theme has been be the church. And so we don't just want to come to church or attend a church. No, we want to be God's church. The church is not a place to be. It's a people to belong to, right? It's this idea that, that we are God's church. And so uh, we've been looking at First and Second Corinthians. We'll jump back into Second Corinthians for the fall. But before we did that, I thought it would be really cool for the summer uh, to look into Jesus talking to some of the New Testament churches in the book of Revelation. And so that's what you're jumping in on. We've uh, made it through five of these churches Hopefully you guys have enjoyed that. The guys were picking on me because I gave them kind of the hard-hitting letters. This morning's more of an encouraging uh, letter to a church that's going through some difficult things, but uh, next week we'll finish that up, and so I hope those have been challenging as well as uh, fruitful and encouraging for us. So today we're going to be talking about the church at Philadelphia, uh, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia in Turkey. Uh, and so that's where we were. This is actually the only church site that we didn't get to go to. Uh, our missionary told us that, you know, there really wasn't anything there. Uh, and so, but I've studied it a lot over the past few weeks and have learned some really cool things uh, about it. I think I have a map to show you uh, up there, potentially, where you can kind of see where Philadelphia is. Yeah, there you go. So here's kind of the seven churches. Uh, I never knew this until I went to Turkey, but they kind of move uh, clockwise. So when Jesus writes to them in the book of Revelation, they start down at the bottom left and move, you know, clockwise all the way down to uh, Philadelphia is the second to last, and then Laodicea we'll cover next week. But uh, Philadelphia is, is, is a, a pretty cool city. And the thing about Turkey, and this is really the reason uh, that even to this day there's been so much uh, war over this, 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 uh, this country and this land, is it is super fertile uh, it is very self-sustaining. Uh, it is it's just a place that, that, that you want to be. I mean, like when it's, it's kind of uh, whether you're growing, it's famous for vineyards. I mean, if you go to Turkey, all you see are olive trees and fruit trees and uh, just wheat fields and corn fields. I mean, it's just incredible uh, to see all of the agriculture there because there's, uh, you're also surrounded by water. So, you know, there's easy travel in and out of there, specifically think when they were traveling by boat, but then also there are mountains. And so it's beautiful. You see these snow-capped mountains, but then in the valleys of these mountains, the land is just fertile and all the water flows down, flows down into these valleys and uh, it's just incredible for, for farming. And so the city of Philadelphia was actually established by the Greek people. And uh, the Greek people established it for a specific purpose, and that purpose 
was almost like a missionary city for the Greek culture. And so uh, it was on a major highway, and that major highway kind of connected Europe, the known world at that point, all the way to Asia, uh, into kind of the east, as they would call it then. And so uh, there was a ton of travel through the city of Philadelphia. And so the Greeks' idea was, let's plant a city here, let's build it up, and then maybe the Greek culture can influence everybody that comes through here, and then we can spread out everywhere. And so now we see Jesus kind of had other plans. He's like, yeah, you thought you were spreading Greek culture, but I'm going to use it to spread the gospel as a missionary city. And so Philadelphia is one of the two churches in Revelation that is not corrected or rebuked, right? And so it's a very encouraging letter. The only other letter we saw where somebody was not corrected or rebuked was Smyrna, and that's because they were facing a lot of suffering. And so it seems like uh, them, uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, really uh, God was pleased with how they were uh, continuing with the gospel. And so Revelation 3, uh, we'll start in verse 7. And we'll, we'll just kind of hear what he has to say here. So verse 7 says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia. We've learned that by now. Angel is uh, the word messenger is what it means. So not necessarily writing to an angel at Philadelphia, but the messenger, the preacher there. And Jesus is writing to him, and here's what he says. These are the words of him who is holy and true. This is how God's referring to himself. Who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And you gotta love how Jesus starts out every letter to every church directly giving an identity of himself and of God. And then what you'll notice when you read these, these, these letters to the seven churches is how God identifies himself, like here, he's talking about I'm the one who's holy and true, the words are holy and true, always applies into the direct situation that the church is walking through. It's as if Jesus is saying, in all of the midst of the world, in all of the, the waves that are tossing you to and fro, and all the situations that kind of knock you off course and really get you in your feelings and kind of uh, everywhere emotionally, God wants to give us something that's stable, that's secure, and what that is is him and his word. And so when we get into life and we face all of these different situations, we don't really know what to do. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. We're kind of uh, forced and our backs are against the wall. God says, let's fix our eyes on him who is true and who is holy because he never changes. And so it's important that we understand that. And so the words that Jesus uses here are holy and true and that he holds the key of David. Well, that's interesting language. You can read right over it if you don't think into it. Well, holy and true, the word holy just means set apart. There's no one like him. He is the only God. He's the only one that is like uh, himself. He is holy, set apart, and he is true. True meaning he will do what he promises. Like he will not lie. He will always basically come through on whatever he promises, and you're going to see with the church here in Philadelphia, he's about to make them six or seven promises that they need in the situation that they're in, and he's telling them, hey, I will come through on these, and they won't, and because when we know that, I mean, think about it. If God literally wrote a letter to Connection Badea and it said this, how much respect would we give to that? I mean, that's what we have in the Bible, but it would just be cool to have a letter just to us. And so when we understand that he is the one and only God, the Holy One, and that he is true and what he writes cannot be false and will come to fruition, then we give it a validity in our life and, a, and an authority in our life unlike anything else. And he also says uh, that he holds the key of David. What is all that about? Well, David was a, a king in the Old Testament. Many of you guys know King David, he's pretty much the greatest king in the history of Israel, arguably. Uh, but he's quoting from Isaiah 22, 22. I'm not going to take you back there, but I will tell you the story. There's a guy by the name of Eliakim who was the son of uh, Hilkiah, if you know those names. But, uh, and, and he was basically a steward for King David. So David kind of put him over uh, his household, and David gave him a key to his house. 
which for a king to give you the key to his house basically is like giving you the key to the city. Like you have now authority, you have a, a, a position of authority over a lot of different things. And so what, he's, what God's basically wanting the church of Philadelphia to know is that God is not only holy and true, but he has authority over all. And he opens doors and he closes doors. And what he opens, there's not a person on earth that can close it. And what he closes, there's not a person on earth that can open it. And so we need to understand that God is powerful and that he is sovereign and that he has the keys to the entire world. Verse eight says this, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And I know that you have little strength Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so he's pleased with them. But I love how he says, I know your deeds. Have you noticed that he said that with every church? Uh, we have a God that's not far off. You understand that, right? Like our God knows his people. Like he knows his church. He's concerned. He's present among us. And he wants, to under, he wants us to understand that he knows what's going on in our life. And he's concerned with it. And he wants to walk with us through the things that are going on in our life, but also the life of our church. And so this church was walking through some difficult circumstances, and they were specific to the church at Philadelphia, and Jesus wants them to know that he knows them. He sees them. He sees what's going on. He sees their faithfulness in the midst of difficult situations, and he encourages them, stay faithful. Thank you for your faithfulness. Continue to be faithful. And then he goes on and he describes them with two words. The first word, uh, or it's really two words, little strength. In the Greek, it's uh, dunamis, little power, right? So it's this idea that when he sees them, he knows that they feel as if they'd have no power in society. They have no influence. They're little in number. Uh, they're little in power. They're facing a lot of opposition. They feel weak, like they feel like they're in a situation where they have no power to do anything or get out of it. And then he not only says that they're of little strength, but he tells them that they are faithful. They've kept his word and they've denied his name. And he goes on later to say, and hold on to what you have. So he's encouraging them that though they feel powerless and though they feel little and like they have no ability to influence or do what God's asking them to do, that they are right in being faithful. And you kind of have to understand the context because here the Romans were in control. And Rome, before Christianity was legalized a few hundred years later, were okay with you being a Christian as long as you bowed the foot to, or your knee to Caesar. As long as you recognize, hey, you can be a Christian, I don't care what religion you are, but when it comes to the Caesar telling you what to do and the emperor saying you need to do this, you better be willing to do it. So you can say Jesus is Lord, but when uh, the emperor's in town, he's the Lord and he controls what to do. And if not, then we're gonna kill you. And so you can see the pressure that they would have been facing politically when the emperor would come in and say, you need to bow to us. And they're like, no, we only bow to one person, Jesus. And so they're in this situation where they're getting this political opposition. Not only that, we're gonna see later that the Jewish opposition was there too, basically saying, y'all aren't the people of God, we're the people of God. They're trying to keep them out of the temple at that point. And so they just felt like wherever they went, there were just closed doors everywhere. It's like, okay, man, we, we wanna do something for Jesus in this world. The Romans are like, you need to shut up or we're gonna kill you. And then on the other side, the Jewish people were like, y'all need to shut up because y'all aren't God's people. I know you think you are, but you're not. I don't care what you say. And so they're just constantly tearing them down, tearing them down, tearing them down. But God looks at them and he says, listen, I see what you're going through. And I, and I, I want you to know that I see your faithfulness. And the most valuable thing we and they can do in the Christian life and as a Christian church is be faithful to God, even when we don't understand what God's doing. Because obviously he's up to something. He's saying, I'm about to open some doors for you. You feel like all of them are closed, but I'm the only true person that can open and close doors. So you need to understand, I got something up my sleeve. You just continue to be faithful. And we can't miss the first part. This is where he says, verse eight, that I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Like, what does that mean? Well, you gotta understand in scripture, open doors are referred to in a couple different ways. But I think here, uh, sometimes we see open doors, and we'll see this next week as uh, a way of salvation. Like God stands outside the door and he's knocking, like come in. 
And then we also see open doors in Revelation where it's like access into the throne room of God. But then a lot of times in the New Testament, open doors, Paul would pray for open doors so that he could share the gospel. Like, open this door. God, God give us an open door into this people so that they uh, can hear uh, the gospel. And he would. And so Jesus was basically telling them that he's opening doors of evangelistic opportunity and he wants them to walk through it. But think about how fearful they would have been with the Romans pressing down their neck and also with the Jewish people belittling them the whole time. Like you could tell they would be nervous, but God wants them to understand. It doesn't matter what they think or what they're doing. What matters is what I'm telling you and the door that I'm opening for you and I need you to be faithful and walk through it. And they had been faithful uh, to do that. And so think about that whole idea of, of Philadelphia being a missionary city. Now Jesus has turned that on its head and basically said, yeah, it's gonna be a missionary city, but a missionary city for me, not for Greek, the Greeks. And so it's kind of cool to think about that. And now he's about to go into some promises. He's already given them a promise of an open door, but listen to verse nine. He says, I'll make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. He says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledged that I, Jesus, have loved you. So apparently we have these Christians in Philadelphia that are being persecuted by these Jews. Now, when Jesus shows up and he calls you a synagogue of Satan, like y'all got to understand, like that's, like that's probably the worst insult in the entire Bible. I mean, if he showed up to C.C. Vidaea and said, you guys are a synagogue of Satan. I mean, there's nothing worse than that. You know what I mean? Like that is the worst, I mean, that, that is the worst uh, thing he could ever say. And he's calling these Jewish people who think they're the chosen people of God, who are probably standing on the fact that they're Jews and God loves the Jewish people and we're his chosen people. Jesus shows up and said, yeah, they're a synagogue of Satan. I mean, so you see this, this picture. And then he tells uh, the, these Gentile believers in Philadelphia, he says, and here's what I'm gonna do. Not only am I gonna tell you that they're a synagogue of Satan, but I'm gonna open this door and at some point through your faithfulness, these people that are calling you not the chosen people of God, I'm gonna humble them to the point where they fall to their knees and not worship you, but fall to your knees and admit to you that you are the chosen people of God and that you are the people that God loved. I mean, it's an incredible promise when you think about what Jesus is saying. He's basically saying, I'm gonna do the work for you. You just keep being faithful to what I've asked you uh, to do. It's absolutely awesome to think about that. Verse 10, then he says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And so not only does he tell them uh, that he's gonna open a door for them, not only does he tell them he's basically gonna turn the Jewish people uh, and knock them down and, and basically have them bow before them and tell them that they're the chosen people of God, but then he's also saying that the hour of trial that's about to come upon the whole world, I'm going uh, to keep you from that. And so the, the, the thing that it makes me think about is in the Old Testament, there would always be things going on in the world. You know, you think about God would be punishing the, the Egyptians, but he would protect the Israelites. Or God would, would, would uh, do something with, with this group of people and protect the Israelites. And, and he did that for the purpose uh, for them to see that whoever the God of the Israelites was, was the only true God. And so it was all about him, people understanding who he was, and that's exactly what he was doing with them. He's saying, hey, this hour of trial is about to come upon the whole earth, but I want you to know that I'm gonna keep you from this hour of trial, and I have a purpose in keeping you from it. But think about them. I mean, they're already in a trial. Like, they're facing a bunch of opposition and really persecution right now, and so he's saying, hey, but there's another one that's gonna come, but take heart, I'm gonna keep you from it, and I have a purpose in why I'm doing that. The word keep you here uh, is, is important to understand. It's the same word Jesus uses in John 17 when he's praying for his disciples, where he says he prays to the Father, Father, keep them from the evil one. And so it doesn't always mean physical protection, right? You understand that? So Jesus never promises us at Christian, as Christians physical protection. Like Christians have died 
all over the Bible for the glory of God so that people could become Christians later on, right? And so we're never promised physical uh, protection in, in most parts of the Bible. There's certain situations you could probably look at and do that. But the other side is when he promises to keep us, he's promising to keep us spiritually, like sustain us spiritually. Though we may walk through difficult things, it's our faith and, and being faithful to God in those difficult things that other people look at and they say, wow, like what in the world? Like, what is going on with them? Like, they still love God. And man, it seems like they've been through hell and back to get to this place. And he does that because he shows, man, there's something different about these people. Their, their peace and their joy is not in the circumstances of the world. It's in something deeper. It's in God who's outside of this, uh, this world. And so our joy sustains even in the midst of difficult things. Verse 11, he then goes on to say, I'm coming to you soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will I leave it. And so again, Jesus makes them another promise. Not only does he promise that he's coming to them soon, but he also promises that he's going to make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, why is this important? Well, one, the Jews had shut them out of the temple, so they couldn't go into the house of worship, so to speak, uh, with the Jewish people. But also, he's already told us they feel of little power, of little strength. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen a pillar. One of the things that we saw in Turkey that was just amazing was these pillars, man. They're like 90 foot tall. They're like big around, I mean, they're huge. I mean, you can't even wrap your arms around them. They're made out of marble and stone. I mean, your first thought is like, how in the world did they erect these things? Like, I mean, there's without a, without a crane or something. I mean, they did it by manpower. And so you just look up and it's, I mean, the tallest thing you've ever seen. These things have been here for thousands and thousands of years. And so as I'm reading this, I'm sitting here thinking, these people feel weak and like they're not gonna make it. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna come to you. I'm gonna sustain you through this. And in the end of the day, you're gonna be a pillar in the temple of my God. You're gonna be strong. You're gonna be foundational to what I'm trying to do. Uh, you're gonna be there forever because pillars don't really fall unless God wants them to fall. So, I mean, it's just an incredible picture of what God wants to do with these Christians that feel of little strength. He's like, no, with me, you feel little, but I'm gonna make you strong and sustainable and, and, and stable and a, and a picture of endurance for everybody to see. And then he goes on in verse 12 and gives them another promise. He says, and listen, I will write on them a, the name of my God. Listen to how many times he says my. It's like he's wanting them to know that they're his and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Like Jesus promises them a threefold name, and it's kind of hard, you can get caught up trying to figure out what exactly the names mean, but one thing's clear with all of it, that is that Jesus wanted the Christians in Philadelphia and everyone else to know that they were his people. You can almost hear him saying, they are mine, these are my people, and nobody can mess with them, nobody can touch them, I'm gonna sustain them, I'm gonna open doors for them, I'm gonna make them a pillar in the temple of my God, I'm gonna give them a new name, they're gonna work for my purposes. It's, it's just this picture of, it doesn't matter what anybody else around you's saying, what, what you feel like is closing in on you, you have a God that has the key and the authority and the sovereignty and the power, and he's saying, they're with me. I mean, that's an incredible promise when you're in the middle of persecution and suffering that God looks down and he says, listen, they're going through difficulty, but they're faithful and they're mine. And I'm gonna protect them and I'm gonna bring them out the other side. It's incredible. Verse 13, and then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you should notice that phrase is at the end of every letter that he writes to the churches. And it's an important phrase and I pray that it characterizes our church. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, there's a tendency in the Christian life uh, to feel like we've got to a point where we don't need God anymore. Like where we think we got it figured out. Like we got this whole Christian life figured out. The church really, you know, we've got this thing figured out. You know, we've done this or done that and you start looking to everything that God's done and you start trying to take credit for it and at the end of the day, you begin to quit being led by the Spirit of God. But the moment the Spirit of God leaves off of a church, the church dies. And so we as a church, you as a Christian, have to be in a posture of God, speak to me 
Speak to me through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, so that I can be open to what you're saying and not only hear it, but heed it and put it into practice. It's important that we understand that. And I believe there's a lot we can learn from this church at Philadelphia, you know, and, and I could preach a hundred different sermons on this, but I want you to know there, there's one word that I think characterizes the church of Philadelphia, and that word is faithful. They were faithful. And honestly, there's nothing more valuable uh, in the world than living a life of faithfulness in the Christian life, right? And so I think there's a tendency as a Christian and as a church to, to begin to focus on things other than faithfulness. And so specifically here, we've seen it throughout the churches uh, in Revelation. Like some of them uh, look alive, like they're, they're thriving. They got uh, people in the parking lot. I mean, the kids' ministry's rocking. I mean, Ethan talked about that last week, and they look alive. But then Jesus looks at them and says, no, they're dead. And so just because there's a lot of people coming to our church and a lot of people coming to a church and it feels alive and it's awesome and you like being here, does not necessarily equal faithfulness. And not only for a church, but for a Christian. Like you can be doing a lot of really good things that appear really good from the outside in, but they're not flowing out of a heart of faithfulness to God. And the thing that he praises is not how big or how little the church is in Philadelphia or how cool the Christians are, how not cool they are. He, what he praises is their faithfulness. And I think for us, I want us to understand what does it mean when Jesus says they are faithful? And so I wanna ask two questions. In Jesus' eyes, what is a faithful church? And, and I think that can be unpersonal if, if you let it. So I'm gonna ask it another way. In Jesus' eyes, what is a faithful Christian? Like, what does it look like for us to be faithful as a church and to be faithful as a Christian? And I got four characteristics of a faithful church that we see here. So number one is this. The faithful church walks through God's doors of opportunity. So the faithful church walks through God's doors of opportunity. So over and over again, you hear Jesus talking in here about these doors. I open doors, I close doors. And it's important to understand that language because as a Christian, we have to effectively be able to see the open doors of God and then walk through them. And I told you in the Bible, there's different kinds of open doors and closed doors. Not every door that's open in your life means it's God's door. And so as a Christian, we have to learn to discern, okay, this is God's door that I'm walking through, or uh, no, nah, I don't think that that door is of God, right? And that should be a really good question in our life. But if you're sitting here, the first door and the primary door that everybody in the room needs to walk through is the door of salvation, right? And so uh, if you're sitting in this room and you're like, Billy, I love all the door language, but I don't understand all that stuff. I'm not even a Christian. Well, here's what I'd understand, and, and this, is, this is important, that God has made a way. Like the message of the gospel is that you and I, every person in this room, uh, was created by God and for God. Like you were created by God as the creator God, and you were created for him. And there's nothing in this life that can fill the desire of your heart that he created to be filled in him. You can try it. money, drugs, sex, alcohol, relationships, uh, reputation, uh, sports, whatever you want to insert into that blight, it's not going to fit the hole that was created to be satisfied and fulfilled in Christ. But the other thing we have in common is that every person in this room has sinned and rebelled against God. And the Bible says that that sin and us deciding that we don't want to live for God, but we want to live for ourselves separates us from the God that we were created to be satisfied in and with. And so it puts us in a debacle like we don't, we don't have because the Bible also makes clear that you and I can't do enough good things to reconcile ourselves back to God. Can't come to church enough, can't read enough, uh, can't do enough good things or, or, or whatever to get back to God because we've already sinned and separated ourselves. But then the message of the gospel is that God made a way for us like he sent his son Jesus to take on the punishment for sin that we deserved so that now through faith in him, we can be reconciled back to God. And now the invitation is available for every person in this room to just walk through the door 
and say, God, I want that. That's what I want. I'm turning from my life. I don't want to rebel against you anymore. And I want to walk through this door. I want, I want to live for you. I want, to, I want to be satisfied in you. And I want to live the life that I was created to live. And this is the door of salvation that every person in this room needs to walk through. And then once you walk through that door, that's the primary door, that's the first door, but the rest of your Christian life is going to be asking God to, to lead you and to show you. The Bible says that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit begins to lead us. And if you read uh, Paul's letters and, and the book of Acts about Paul, Paul was constantly praying for open doors and then he would walk a certain way and he'd say, well, God closed the door of opportunity here, so now I'm gonna go this way and then God would open a door of opportunity opportunity and got and Paul would walk in step with the Holy Spirit and when he was in step with the Holy Spirit God would do incredible things in him and through him but there's this tendency in the Christian life to not live our life that way to, to, to begin to think we have it figured out and basically put a routine in place of living by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's not a routine. Like, he don't fit into your routine. You understand what I'm saying? Like, he, he is the routine. Like, we gotta figure out how do you connect with him and how do you begin to discern, like, what door is he asking me to, to walk through? And this comes when we spend time with him and we, we learn to hear his voice through God's word and we learn the heart of God because the Spirit of God has the heart of God and it does the work of God in us so that we can begin to do the work of God in the world. Like, that's what it does. And the more we know about God and who God is, the more we can begin to live and walk by the Holy Spirit to become more like him. And so, but this door I'm talking about is this door of opportunity. As a Christian, we have to begin to say, God, what doors have you placed in my life? God, which door do you want me to walk through? And there's two primary ones in the Christian life. One is the door of, uh, after salvation, the door of obedience. And listen, I'm telling you, every day in your life, you will face the crossroads of obeying God and doing what God wants you to do and then obeying yourself and walking in sin and doing what you want to do and what you feel like doing. Like, it's a crossroads and it's a reality for every person in this room. And Jesus says, if you want to be faithful, you gotta learn to identify the door of obedience and you gotta learn to quit walking through the door of selfishness and sin and walk through this door of obedience. And you may not know what's on the other side of that door of obedience, you understand that? But God's already promised the abundant life and the life that he wants, to live, he wants us to live is on the other side of that. That's the life of fulfillment and satisfaction, even when it doesn't feel like it. And we gotta learn to walk through it. And then there's also another type of door called the door of evangelism. Right, Paul used to pray for it all the time. God, would you open the door for the gospel in this, in this group of people or with this group of people? Would you open this door so that I can share the gospel? And he's saying the church at Philadelphia was walking through these doors. They had been saved. They were obedient. They were in the face of, of difficult opposition, but they were sharing the gospel and trying to evangelize these people that didn't know uh, the Lord. Charles Spurgeon used to tell a story uh, that was, was, I'll never forget it. He's, he's talked about a man that came up to him one time after service, and he said, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, this is a, a really great preacher in, the, in, in history, if you don't know who he is. And he walked up, he said, Pastor, uh, how, how can I win people to Jesus? Like, how do I win people to Jesus? And Spurgeon asked him, well, well who are you and, and what do you do? And the guy said, I'm so-and-so, and, -so and I'm, I'm an engine driver for a train. And Spurgeon replied, he says, was well, the man who shovels coals on your train a Christian? And the man said, well, well, I don't know. And Spurgeon looks back at him and he said, well, go back and find out and you start with him. Like that's the open door. Like we gotta look around. Like the open door of evangelism is there with us. We just have to begin to open our eyes and see who is around us that doesn't know the Lord. Well, God, open a door for me to share the gospel with this person. You know, open a door, like the door's open. You just gotta begin to be faithful and walk through this door. The second thing we learn about the faithful church is that the faithful church perseveres through difficulty and opposition. It perseveres through difficulty and opposition. How do we know? 
Well, he already told us this, this church in Philadelphia was a church of little strength, but he told them to hold on to what you have. And he told us about the synagogue of Satan that was opposing them. And then he also told us about an hour of trial that was about to come around, around them with the people. And so here's what we need to understand. It is unbiblical un un to believe God's will and a life of ease always go together. You get that, right? This is, this is so important to understand because there's so many people in this room that no preacher has ever talked to you about suffering. No preacher, we don't like to talk about it. And, and a shame on us for not because the Bible gives us a very, a, a lot of examples of, of how Christians will suffer. It actually promises it. And so it, it's unbiblical to believe that we can walk in God's will and, ex, and, and, and not experience, how do I explain this? So it's, it's unbiblical to believe that God's will will always include your comfort. That makes sense? And so we like to equate those two things, but they're not always equal. It doesn't mean that every time you follow Jesus, it's gonna be, life is gonna be hard. I mean, more than not, it probably will be, but, and, and I'm not saying that following Jesus is gonna be miserable because there are times uh, where God gives you seasons of joy. But listen to God's word on this. It's not just me talking. 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, everyone who wants, who? Who is that? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. All right, who? Everyone. Does that include me and you? Yeah, absolutely. John 16.33. Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. All right, Jesus, who? If you are his disciple, in this world you will have trouble. 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Who's he looking for? Lost people? No, he's an enemy of God. So any person that's a Christian, not only will you face trouble in this world, but you also have a, an enemy that's trying to oppose you. The Bible says he's prowling around like a roaring lion and he's got a plan for your life and that's to devour you. And so we see this scripture teaches us that as a Christian, it's important for us to understand that in the world, we will face difficulty and opposition. And as a church, it's important for us to understand that we will face difficulty and opposition. Like those things are going to happen. And God's word tells us that. And here we see it in the church at Philadelphia. They were facing a lot. And I'm not saying our situation will be just like the church at Philadelphia. It's probably gonna look different for us. But they were in a difficult trial. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were having opposition from the Jews, from the Rome, uh, from satanic opposition was coming after them. Not to mention they were in a place where earthquakes and volcanoes happened all around them all the time. So there were just things going on with them. And God comes to them in Christ and writes them a letter. And his encouragement to them is to, to continue to persevere. Like, hold on to what you have. Continue to be faithful. He doesn't say, hey, escape the persecution. Like, run from it. Like, Christianity is not about running from hard things. It's about walking into hard things with God by your side and allowing him to grow you and then use the situation and use your faith in the situation to save others. And I'm telling you, the quicker we begin to understand that, the quicker God's gonna begin to use us to do some really, really incredible things in our life. So the question becomes, how are you responding to difficulty and opposition in your life? And I've told you this before if you've been here, but difficult circumstances, this is how I want you to think about it. Difficult circumstances and opposition are not bad. Like they are opportunities for us to grow and to trust God more. Like that's what they are. They're opportunities from God for us to trust him more and grow in our faith. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. Peter says this himself. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And listen, these have come so that, cause and effect, the proven genuineness of your faith 
which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire. And this faith may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, though you have not seen Christ, you love Christ. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, which will be the salvation of your souls. That's such an important. Peter says trials and sufferings come upon us to strengthen and to refine our faith. And so the question becomes, what difficult situation does God have you in right now to grow your faith? Like, what is it that he's got you in right now that he's asking you to quit praying, God, why am I in this situation? And begin to start asking him, God, what are you trying to do in my life through this situation? Now, that's good. It's hard to hear, but that's good. Like, we have to begin to pray, God, not why do you have me in this situation, but God, what are you trying to do? How are you trying to strengthen my faith in this situation? How are you trying to make me more like yourself in this situation? I could give you a ton of other examples, and I'm going to skip ahead just because I'm, I'm about out of time there. But 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, uh, Paul basically says uh, that, that God put him in a situation where he thought God was trying to kill him. Like he was at the point of death. Like he was, he was basically ready to die. And then he makes this statement, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so we must learn that God is gonna put us many times in difficult situations so that we have to rely on him. Because listen to this, some of us, and, and all of us need to understand that we don't know a lot of times that God is all that we need until he's all that we have. And so some of these situations that we're facing, God is intending to bring us to that point. Because listen, when a person understands that God is all that they need, that's a life-changing reality that changes everything about them. And God wants every one of us to be at a place, and many of us have maybe been there, but sometimes we need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that. But man, God is all we need because he is what we're created for and to live for. The third thing we learn about a faithful church is that a faithful church clings to the promises of God. Did you notice how every promise to the church of Philadelphia is tailor-made for their situation? Now he, that's what I love about God. Is he, he gives promises specifically to the church at Philadelphia that's, speci that's facing specific opposition and specific difficult circumstances. You can almost hear that the church of Philadelphia praying in the passage, I mean, it doesn't say they're praying, and then hear God answering it. It, it would sound something like this, but God, they're keeping us out of the synagogue. Like we can't even go to the house of worship. And then we have no influence in the culture because the Romans are trying to kill us. And Jesus says, I will open a door of opportunity that no one can shut. And it's just simple and plain. And it's like, all right. I can't complain against that. But God, we have enemies that are trying to kill us. They're saying that we worship a false God and they're saying we're not God's people. And Jesus says, I will make them know that you are my people and that I love you and that I am your God. But, but God, these trials are hard. They're more than we can bear. God, we're weary and we're barely hanging on. And God says, I'll keep you and I'll be with you. But, but, but God, we really feel weak and wobbly and, and we're being rejected and, and just excluded. And God says, it doesn't matter what they say. It matters who you are. And I'm gonna give you my name. And I've written my name on you. And I'm gonna make you a pillar in the house of God. It's incredible to see how personal God is with the churches in Revelation. And the truth is, is that he may not write a letter to Connection Church by Delia or a letter to you, but he has written a letter. Like he's written 66 of them. And so the, 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 the truth for us is we have to begin to learn the promises of God so that when we're in the situation that, that's pressing us and pressing us in from all sides, we can call on the promise of God and trust that he is who he says he is. You get what I'm saying? Like when you're in that situation, that's when knowing God's word is so important. 
or at least knowing somebody who knows God's word, but I would say the mo- one of the most valuable things that any person in this room could ever get to the point of is where you have God's promises in the Bible memorized, where when the world cuts you and you're bleeding and you, you're, you're stressed and you're just like, I don't know how I'm gonna make it, you can begin to call on the word of God. Because when, when you hear you're feeling tired, you need to know that God can be your strength and he promises to be our strength. When you're struggling, you need to know that God's with you in that struggle. Like, like when, you, when you feel like God has forgotten about you, like how could God see me and, and, and he's forgotten about me? You need to know that God sees you. He sees you, he's with you. He's walking beside you. When you feel inadequate, God says, my spirit is with you. Like it will empower you. He will empower you. When you're at your wit's end and you just feel weak, like you can't make it, God wants you to understand that when you're weak, he's strong and he wants to help you. I mean, one of the things that I wish somebody would have taught me earlier in my relationship with God was the importance of memorizing scripture. Like literally, I just sat down today before preaching. I was laying in bed last night thinking about this. I was just thinking, I wonder how many promises of God like I could just call from memory on my head. And just this morning, I just, I just wrote down 15, and I stopped. I was like, I'll be up there all day if I do them. But these are my favorite promises from this morning that come into my head. Romans 10, 9. How I many of you guys know that? If you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. I don't ever doubt my salvation. Why? Because I've confessed with my mouth, and I've believed in my heart that Jesus is my Savior, and now I'm saved. You know, think about Romans 8, 28. God's working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So I don't ever get in situations and doubt that God has a purpose in this situation. Now, there's many times I'm like, God, I don't know what your purpose is, but I don't ever doubt that he's got a purpose because he's already told me if I love him and I'm, I'm walking with him that he's going to work this out for, for my good and for his glory. Now think about James 4, 8. The Bible says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. There's never a time where I feel like God is far off because he's told me if I draw near to him, he will draw near to me. Now, if, if I am far off, it's because I'm choosing to be far off, right? But God's not far off. He hasn't went anywhere. Acts 1, 8. You know, you get this scripture where he says, uh, you will receive power. I will give you power to be my witnesses. So I don't ever doubt when I step into something God's called me to do because I know he's gonna give me what I need to do what he's called me to do. Now, do I know how that's gonna happen all the time? No, but I've learned to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because as soon as you get comfortable, you've quit walking by the Holy Spirit because if you're anything like me, I'm only comfortable when I'm in control, huh? Anybody else? But the idea of walking by the Holy Spirit is that you're not in control of your life. You're listening to God and doing what he's asking you to do. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. That means that I know where my joy is found. Even if I feel like doing things my way is gonna make me happier, I already know God's told me that my joy is found when I follow his path of life. So I don't have to doubt that anymore. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anybody's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I don't have to look back at my past and think, man, God would never use me because of that. God, I was such an idiot there. Because in Christ, that's gone. Like when I became a Christian, in God's eyes, I'm new. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, right after that, he basically says, he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf so that I could be now in Christ, the righteousness of God. That means that my righteousness as a Christian, my access to God, God's love for me is not based on what I can do. It's not subjective. There's nothing I can do to lose God's love. There's nothing I can do to make God love me anymore because my love is secure in what Christ has already done. So I don't ever have to doubt if God loves me or not. 
Like he's already shown me, not just told me, but shown me in his son. Revelation 7, when I think about the billions of people around the world that have no access to the gospel and like, God, how can we as a church do anything when there's, there's, there's three billion people and there's thousands of people groups that nobody's even trying to plant a church in right now? He takes me to Revelation 7, where we're all sitting around the throne of God in the end. And he says, there's a people from every tribe and every tongue. And they're around the throne and they're praising God. He doesn't tell me how it's gonna happen. He tells me we need to plant churches and be a part of what he's doing. But he says it will happen. And he invites us to join in on his work. First John 1, he says, if I confess my sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me. 1 John 4, 4, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Ephesians 1, he tells me that I've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm in Christ. Ephesians 3, he says, God desires to do in me and through me and in his church and through his church more than we could ever ask or imagine. Matthew 29, 19, he says, whatever we uh, have to give up for Christ's sake in this world, we will receive a thousand times more in eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us we shouldn't fear death anymore because death has lost its sting. The end of my story, the end of your story is an empty grave, just like Christ. John 14, in this world, we will have trouble, but he says, take heart because I've overcome it. Philippians 1, 6, he says, he who begins a good work in me will bring it to completion. There's no if and if or buts. He says, will bring it to completion. I never doubt that God's gonna give up on me. There's times where he should give up on me, but he doesn't. He says, I started the work. I'm going to finish the work. But listen, if you don't know the word of God, you can't call those things to mind when you feel like God's given up on you. And so we need to know the word of God. It's so important that we know the word of God. We can't cling to the promises of God if we don't know the promises of God. The fourth and final one is this, the faithful church lives for the return of Christ. We live for the return of Christ. Here's the reality. When you think about Christ coming back, it produces one of two things in your heart and in your mind. Either you're scared to death and filled with fear, or either it comforts the heck out of you. And you can't wait for him to come back you know he's coming back for you. Like you are a part of his people, not because of anything you've done, but because you are in Christ. And in this room today, when you think about Jesus coming back, if he came back today, what comes into your heart and into your mind when you think about that reveals spiritually everything you need to know about where you are with God. And so today, I pray and if you're here and you say, man, I'm scared to death. I, I don't even know God. I don't have a relationship with God. I'm not in Christ. You would heed the invitation of Christ. Come. Walk through the door of salvation. If you're here and you say, Billy, my heart's not right with God. I've been wandering off. Today would be the day that you'd receive the invitation of repentance and say, God, I'm done doing it my way. I see where that leads me. I'm surrendering to you. Maybe you hear and it, it just burdens your heart for people that do not know the Lord. Well, maybe today would be the day that you would say, I'm walking through that open door of evangelism and I'm gonna share what God has done for me with this person that God's put in front of me. Let's pray. So Father, I, I don't know where everybody in this room is right now, but God, what I do know is you're here. And God, your word empowered by your spirit works in the hearts of people. So Lord, I'm praying for the people in this room today, we would respond to the work that you're doing in our heart. God, would we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand and sing?